It's great to have you with us today. We want to welcome you to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We've said this before, and we'll probably continue to say it, but having these conversations that we have on these podcasts are, are some of the very favorite things that we get to do. It's such a joy to be able to talk with different people from different parts of the, of, of the United States, different countries around the world about the different things that they are doing. And yet we are all together doing work in the same space. It's about listening. It's about connecting. It's about relationships. It's about trying to come to understanding about empathy. It's, it's trying to help our fractious world be you know, just a place that's not so fractious, not so tense, not so um, acrimonious. And today's guest, Dr. Uh, Tanya Israel, is one who, who is in this space too. And we were just so impressed with what she had to say, with the work that she's doing, the understandings that she, she brings, the way she articulates it. And uh, as always, we just hope that you will enjoy this conversation uh, with her as much as we enjoyed having it. So let's tell you a little bit about Tanya. Tanya Israel is a professor in the Department of Counseling, Clinical, and School Psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She holds a PhD in Counseling Psychology and is a fellow of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Israel identifies as a biracial, Asian-American, bisexual, Jewish, Buddhist feminist. Dr. Israel teaches about helping skills, leadership, and community collaboration, among other things. She has facilitated educational programs and difficult dialogues about a range of topics, including abortion, law enforcement, religion, and sexual orientation. She had a book that came out, Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide, Skills and Strategies for Conversations that Work, which grew out of Dr. Israel's skill-building workshop that she developed and delivered to hundreds of participants following the 2016 election. So... We, uh, we are excited to ha- share this episode with you, and we know and trust that you will find a way forward in uh, contentious times. Welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We are so grateful to have you join us in conversation today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, we're glad about that. <laughs> well, let's start. You've written that since your childhood, you've been drawn to causes. And that caught our attention very much. And so we'd like, if you don't mind in starting to tell us about your upbringing, your experiences, and and what has led you to who you are today, and where you are today and what you do. Absolutely. Wow, what a lovely question. Let's go back to the beginning. I will say that I had causes modeled for me. Um, My grandmother was very involved in the League of Women Voters. My parents uh, protested the Vietnam War, and they fought for educational opportunities and racial equity in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I grew up and at the University of Virginia. So there was definitely um, a, a family lineage of causes. And then I became a women's studies major, so that didn't uh, dissuade me from continuing on with interest in um, what's important in terms of society and how do we move those things forward. 
Um, the, the way that this then ends up connecting with this work that I've been doing on dialogue is that I was um, very involved in pro-choice um, politics and, and, um, and causes. And there was a point at which I just got tired of being angry at the pro-life people and at the protesters outside the clinics. I, I felt like my anger was not helping the women who I was trying to support in their decisions and in their process. And so I wanted to do something different. And I heard a piece on NPR about a group in St. Louis that was bringing together pro-choice and pro-life people to have dialogue with each other. And I was like, wow, I wanna try doing that. So I reached out to the head of the pro-life crisis pregnancy center. And I was living in Charlottesville at the time. And, and we got together and we started this group that, that brought folks together for dialogue. And it was really a transformational experience for me. It didn't change anything about how I felt about women's reproductive freedom, but it changed so much about how I felt about people who disagreed with me about it. And that has uh, stuck with me ever since then and really guided so much of my work. Well, that couldn't be more of a timely topic to talk about with some of the current events right now. And if we remember, we were listening to your TEDx talk, and in there you had described this con concept of confirmation bias. And maybe you could explain a little bit about what that topic means for our listeners and what you meant by that idea. Of course. Uh, I'm a psychologist, and so I'm very interested in how people think about things. And uh, unfortunately, our minds are sort of operating systems, do not always see things exactly as they are. And, and we have ways that we misconstrue things. So one of the ways is confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is really about how we pay attention to information that's consistent with what we already believe. And we tend to avoid or dismiss information that contrasts with the views that we hold. And I feel like people have been uh, have become more aware of this idea of confirmation bias in the last few years. There's been more sort of media that's that's been pointing to it. But what I see is that people are very good at saying, oh, I can see how people on the other side are susceptible to confirmation bias. But very few people seem willing to sort of um, turn that mirror on themselves and see the ways that they might do that. I think it's true. We, we do hear best the things that we agree with and, and the things that do confirm what we what we believe and, and what we want to hear. This is absolutely true. And it's, it's um. A phrase that I, I just I had never heard before, but as soon as I read about it and and you know as you continue to talk about it, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. What 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 I what I've seen happening because you know people are talking about um, fake news and you know that that we don't even agree on what's true. What I see happening in in what people are being exposed to is it's not necessarily that something is completely uh, wrong, but that it's only a slice of the information. It's only one piece of it, or it's just how much of different kinds of information we're being exposed to. For example, people on the left have probably been exposed to lots more images of uh, sort of the hostile takeover of the Capitol on January 6th, then people on the right might be in their media. But people on the right in their media are probably a lot more exposed to the protesters in Portland who were, um, you know, pretty um, 
uh, aggressive and some firebomb the police station. And that's much more prominent in the news sources on the right and the news sources on the left just aren't covering that as much. So it's not even necessarily that it's wrong information. It's just that we're, we're getting exposed to different information and we are drawn toward the information that sort of supports the narrative that we have. Which makes it difficult to have a productive conversation, right? Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because people always think that what we need to do to have a conversation is to agree on the facts. And the facts are the most important thing. And, you know, it's funny because I'm a researcher, but what I know from the research is that that's not what's most important to changing people's minds or to having a close relationship with someone. It's not necessarily about agreeing on facts and, and paying attention to the same research. If that's not as important, what is as important? What is important, most important to helping people see perhaps another perspective or something in a different way? Sure. Well, one of the most important things is having a good relationship with that person, having a trusting and warm and caring relationship. And if we have that, then one, we're you know, more likely to be able to understand somebody else's perspective, and they're going to be more interested in and open to understanding ours. Without that, if we're coming at people from an attacking kind of uh, um, tone or dismissive, or we're telling people they're selfish or ignorant, we're never going to be able to uh, have a kind of relationship there that's going to accomplish any sort of goals that we want to have out of dialogue. If we remember correctly, you had used this phrase about winning an argument and how we are all prone to trying to win an argument. And maybe you could explain a little bit about what, what it means to win an argument and, and maybe even reframing the word winning. Absolutely. I, I've been thinking so much about the way we think about things in terms of debates. You know, we, we think when we see a debate, there's two different parties who are, you know, different teams that are taking uh, different sides of an issue. And they're trying to sort of lay out all of the information that's, um, that's most persuasive and frame it in certain ways. And we sometimes think that's what we're supposed to be doing in dialogue. But even in a debate, nobody thinks that they're actually going to convince the other team to see things their way. The goal is you want to convince a judge or an audience to see things your way. But you're never actually trying to do this thing with the other team that sees things you know, from, from a different perspective. So if we're bringing that model into dialogue that we think we're supposed to you know, sort of uh, argue in such a way that we would convince an outside audience, then we're not going to be focusing on that relationship. And, you know, there's not an outside audience. So, you know, what we're seeing people doing in the media, what we're seeing people doing in debate, that's not a good model to bring into uh, to dialogue. And in fact, that's going to derail the conversation. It's, it's not going to help you to get to your goals. So, your question is such a good one. What does winning mean? So I'm going to talk about the goals that people tell me that they have for dialogue. When I ask people, what is it that makes you interested in this? Reliably, these are the things that they say. I want to maintain a relationship with somebody who's important in my life, but we're having trouble because we have disagreement. Some people say I want to persuade or convince other people to see things the way I do. 
Some people say, I want to find common ground or heal the divide. And some people say, I simply cannot understand how people can think or act or vote as they do. So these are the goals. These are pretty much the goals that everybody's having around dialogue. So how do you achieve those goals? That's what I would say winning is. And interestingly, it's exactly the same thing to achieve any of those goals. You want to have a conversation and a connection that, that promotes connection and understanding. That is the key to maintaining a relationship, to common ground, healing the divide, persuasion, or promoting understanding of where somebody else is coming from. We love that you keep coming back to this word relationship because the word relationship is a better word than winning because at the end of the day, it's all about evoking dialogue that, that leads to greater relationships and connections. As soon as we use the word winning, it's, it's kind of one-upping one the other person, right? <laughs> Which yeah, is, exactly. is, is not equality. And it's not only not equality, but you know, it's, it's not going to help you to reach your goals. Like I always say, like, what's your motivation? Why are you in this? Now I'm going to tell you the challenge, which, which I've learned is that people have more than one goal. So people might say, well, I have this goal of maintaining this relationship, but I'm also sort of motivated to want to just express my views openly. And that that might be in conflict with the kind of strategies you would use if you're just trying to, to develop relationships. So I think that that's the important thing to navigate is recognizing not only like what are your goals for dialogue, but what are the other kinds of motivations that you might have? And maybe some of those are even not in your conscious awareness, but maybe maybe you have this goal to just be heard. Maybe you have um, uh, you know, a goal to wanna lay things out the way you see it, um, even if that's not gonna bring somebody around to your perspective. So thinking about like, what are the different motivations you have and what do you wanna prioritize in this conversation and in this relationship. When you speak of, um, you know, maybe people just want to be heard. We find that that's very, very true. That 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 much of the and we when we train and and do teaching and speaking about listening, you know, our work, we try to f emphasize that that it's not about fixing someone, you know, or necessarily changing their opinion or getting them to move to another side. It's it's about they 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 just need to know that someone hears what they have to say. Mm -hmm. Someone cares what they have to say someone is listening to what they have to say and and whether they agree or disagree just allowing it to be said and and so often people are not looking in our in what we understand they're not looking to be you know even answered in many ways mm -hmm. as much as to be heard Oh, absolutely. I, I my experience is very similar to to what yours is in this that that listening itself and just hearing somebody trying to understand them and communicating to them that you're understanding them and that you want to listen, that is so healing in itself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We'd love to give you a kind of a, a real life case study uh, by one of a, su a supporter of ours recently mm -hmm. posted this and we asked for his permission to share it. And, and he said, yes. And I just want to add how many of us could see ourselves in this story that I'm about to read. And he said, we have a friend who told us about two of his friends, and they happen to be brothers, who have very different opinions about preventing COVID-19. One brother is in favor of vaccination and masks. The other isn't. Their differences have caused a huge division between the once close brothers 
and now they don't speak to one another, and neither do their children. It's become an acrimonious and painful situation within the family. Our friend has said that the brothers seem to love their opinions more than one another. And he asks, what if we all began loving people more than our opinions instead? We know this is a story that is far, far too common in our world today. Um, What do you think about that story? Well, I think, first of all, it's heartbreaking. And it is what so many people are experiencing right now. That's um, the the conflict and, you know, there's political conflict, but that's not just ideas conflict. It, it's really very personal also. You know, people are feeling it very deeply and in a way that's very applicable to their own lives. So it's not just we're talking about theory. We're talking about real things and real people. And so this is very much what's what I see going on. In terms of what to do about this, I'm assuming that's sort of part of the part of the question that that you'd like me to address. Yeah. Okay. So the the first thing is really thinking about what are all the motivations here, and if there is a motivation to stay connected, and and really this is something that I'm hearing from people. They want to stay connected. We we need our relationships with people. We need our families, and what are the other motivations though? Like what else is coming up for people that's that's causing them to not prioritize that? And there are a lot of things going on with COVID, you know, very much around uh, people feeling safe, around people feeling um, that they can, can make their own decisions, uh, that they're, you know, concerned about other people's safety. People are concerned about the economy. It's, it's really... Um, just created such an existential crisis for us um, in this world. And so recognizing sort of what are all of those things that might be operating and being curious about what might be going on for this other person who who you care about, who you love, um, and, and being interested in how that might be different from yours. Um, and rather than trying to sort of say, well, we need to come to the same place, say, can we both come to a place of understanding? And that might be the common ground, not that you agree on the issues, but that you both really want to understand a different perspective. Because frankly, it's not just these brothers, because these brothers are a microcosm of our schools and our communities and and our country. And I am so interested in knowing about, you know, people in this country who have a different perspective than I do. We are all part of this country. And I want to know where they're coming from, because otherwise, I don't know how we move forward as as a country. And um, it's it's not ever going to be as simple as we're all going to come around to see things from the same perspective we're going to have to understand each other. So what an amazing opportunity it is. If you have somebody close to you in your life who sees things in a different way, this is an opportunity to try to understand another person, another family member, another American. Could you talk more about understanding? What does it mean to understand? And is understanding achievable? If it's not, this seems like things are hopeless then. So how do we come to understanding and find it and hold on to it? Such a good question. 
I'm going to talk about this on two levels. One has to do with listening and one has to do with perspective taking. So in terms of understanding, one of the things that we can do in a real um, concrete sense is that when somebody's speaking uh, and telling us what they think, rather than coming back at them with what we think, we come back at them with, oh, here's what you think. We basically summarize back to them what they just said. That does a couple things toward understanding. First of all, it's gonna make that other person feel understood. It's gonna make them feel like you care and you understand them and that's really great for healing. Another thing it's gonna do is it's gonna make sure you actually listen to them. And uh, if you know that what you're gonna be doing is summarizing, you're really gonna pay attention. What exactly is it that they're saying so that I can say that back? And it also gives them an opportunity to correct you. If you say, oh, so this is what you think. And they say, well, no, that's not exactly it, either because you didn't get it or because sometimes when people hear things back, they go, oh, I, I don't even agree with what I just said, you know, so it allows for some correction and people to understand both themselves and each other on a deeper level. So, so that's the first piece of understanding is that concrete kind of skills piece when, when you're in dialogue. The other piece about understanding is perspective taking. So perspective taking means that you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes and see things from their view. I think it's so interesting to do that because I see things, you know, just in a very small slice of what all the possible ways of seeing something are. I mean, I just remember, you know, from philosophy class in college, like, okay, here's a table and I'm seeing like this nicely finished table because I'm looking at it from my angle. You're sitting on the other side where it's all scratched up and you're like, look at this dinged up old table. Well, is it a nicely finished table? Is it a dinged up table? Is it a table at all? Or, you know, does your cat think it's a bed? Um, there, there are a lot of different ways of perceiving something. So I'm so limited if I'm only looking at things from one of those perspectives, wouldn't it be more interesting for me and more, um, I, I don't know, give me more skills and, um, and, a, and more wisdom maybe if I could see things from a whole bunch of different perspectives. I, I know that sometimes that feels threatening to people because they think, wow, well, does that mean that all of this is equivalent and, and I'm not, you know, am I not right then? And I, I would say you're probably right and so are a lot of other people that there's just different ways of seeing things. So I really encourage perspective taking. I feel like people have some resistance to it sometimes, but I think it sort of helps all of us to be in a better place um, to understand not only other people, but just, you know, the, the whole world in more complex uh, ways and, and things are complex. So probably more accurate ways. I'd like to come back to your second point there, just about getting people to elaborate if we don't hear correctly mm. the first time. And I know on your Twitter account, I found that you, you had given three, what we think are very practical questions that encourage elaboration. And the first was that you said, I, I'd be interested in hearing more about this. The second is, can you tell me how you developed those ideas? The third was, were there people you encountered in your life that influenced your views? And we found in our work that asking clarifying questions also, yes, it does show that we're interested, that we're, we're wanting to learn more, but it also just kind of... Um, it puts the person at ease just that mm -hmm. they can, it's almost like they can take a deep breath because 
we're 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 genuinely interested in what they have to say and you know when you ask those questions what what have been some of your experiences with folks sure so people do like to have space to share more if they feel like that's in a non-judgmental kind of environment. So it's not always good to sort of fire question after question after question at somebody because then they feel like they're being interrogated. So that's one of the reasons that summarizing back is, is a good thing to do even before you ask any kind of question or encourage elaboration. And, and in fact, just sharing something back, you know, summarizing back does encourage elaboration because sometimes people will then just go on from there if you're if you're in a place that you're not interrupting that you're allowing them to keep talking the kinds of questions that that i laid out there are so that people can share more about their stories often we are sort of stuck at this level of sharing opinions and you know we're all kind of sharing what we just read or what we just heard and sharing that back and forth and that's one, not a very productive conversation. It's not necessarily going to lead us anywhere useful. And I, I'm just going to tell you, honestly, I don't even think it's the most interesting conversation we can have. I think it's much more interesting to know about people's lives and how they got somewhere rather than just like the stats and slogans that that, that side of the argument um, are making. So I think it, it helps us to make our conversations richer, to encourage people to reflect more on um, sort of what's underneath their opinions or how did they get there. And the other great thing is, we can have these conversations with people who are on the same side on a political issue, um, as well as people who are on a different side. And I think even among people who basically agree about politics, we're not even having those rich and interesting conversations among, among ourselves. And that's going to actually help, uh, help to prepare us to have more conversations across political disagreement. Yeah, I think if if I remember correctly, you had cited some st- statistics around this that there's two thirds of Americans are closer to the middle on most issues when it comes to their views, and you also cited that two thirds of Americans believe the current political climate is a major source of stress. And if if that's true, what would you say to those two thirds about finding a way forward? Great question. Boy, you are, you did your homework. You're reading all the stuff. And, and interestingly, like, yeah, two thirds keeps coming from up. Those are actually two different studies. So the first one about two thirds of Americans are closer to the middle. This is from this group called More in Common, which I think is doing some great research around the, the political divide, around our perceptions of it and around where people are. So one of the things that they found is that, you know, there are some people who are more extreme on the left. There are some people who are more extreme on the right. And then you've got your kind of traditional Republicans, traditional Democrats, but most people are in what they're calling the exhausted majority. And the exhausted majority are, uh, you know, to some extent checking out of our democracy because they don't like the tone of the people on either side. And so, so that that's part of it. So there's two, you know, like majority of people who are not at the extremes, even though 
the people at the extremes are who we hear from the most. They're the ones who are the spokespeople on, on TV and radio. They're the ones who are posting on social media. You don't get a lot of people posting on social media who say, yeah, I can kind of see both sides of that argument. And then like they go viral, like this just doesn't happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> it never, never happens, does it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's the people on the extremes who are hearing from all the time. So we have this perception that everybody is extreme and that that's what polarization looks like. And it's really not. And we have this misperception of that. So I'm always trying to correct that perception and use those data to, um, to, to do that. So, but the other piece of it is that two thirds of Americans also like cite the current political climate as a source of stress. And so I'm not sure it's the same two thirds. It could be because they're exhausted, but actually the people on the extremes are the ones who are also more kind of emotionally activated by the news. They're the news junkies. They're the ones who get really revved up about it, who you cannot have a conversation without them bringing it back to politics. And so they're actually pretty stressed um, because they are sort of in that emotionally activated place. Some of that those two thirds of the people in the middle, they're, they're just like not watching the news as much, or they're watching network news, which is, you know, sort of just laying things out in a way that's not as volatile. One of the words that um, is most important to us is, is empathy. We, you know, we, we, we talk about that a lot, stress that a lot. How would, what does empathy mean to you and how in this polarizing world of extremes, so many extremes, how again do we, and we think it relates to understanding and it relates to perspective taking and it relate, you know, there's, there's a relationship to empathy to these things you've already been talking about, but I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit, a little bit more what empathy means to you and how, how that can help to heal to solve, to, to, to bring people to, closer together. Thank you for that question. I, I think it's empathy is such a key foundation for these kinds of relationships that, that we have that will help to move us forward. So empathy means, and not just to me, like if you look into the psychology literature, there's two different aspects to empathy. One is being able to um, really feel where somebody else is. Um, so, so that thing I was talking about with perspective taking that, you know, empathy can be a part of that really getting what somebody else's experience is. Another aspect of empathy is communicating that you get where somebody else is coming from. So communicating your understanding in a way like that I was talking about before, where you might summarize back what somebody has, was, had said. Well, I wanted to come back to something you had brought up a moment ago about the people who tend to be outside of, let's say, the two-third majority, because you had asked us before we even um, started this episode, who are some of our listeners? And we know some of our listeners in particular, I'm thinking of a couple in particular, Michael, who they are going to be wanting to, to listen to this episode for sure, but they probably don't find themselves within the two-thirds. And... So one of the things that we've found to be true, and some people might disagree with us on this because, you know, at the heart of our work is listening and not judging and, and allowing people to 
process whatever their belief systems may be. And yet we've also found it to be beneficial to spend time with people who have similar perspectives as us. And I'm thinking of some of those people in particular who, who um, probably don't fall within the two thirds who we connect deeply with. And we almost look at those conversations with those folks as being, it, it kind of fills our cup so that mm-hmm. maybe then we can go back into these conversations that are these dialogues that are more difficult. Yes. I'm so glad that you brought that up because as I'm talking about like, okay, when you're in these conversations, here's how you're going to do it. And there's a part that I talk about with managing your emotions because our buttons can certainly get pushed when we're in those conversations. And we hear things not only that we disagree with, but that kind of feel threatening to our values or our identities or to people we care about. And if we have our goals for dialogue that we're trying to to achieve, then we might not want to express all those emotions right there because we might, that might derail things, we might want to stay in it. But we need somewhere we can do that, you know? So I think that those people who agree with us are really important um, because we can, we can go there, we can get our cup filled, we can um, uh, talk about all the things we agree about in shorthand and people just go, yeah, exactly. And, and we just need that sometimes. I think sometimes we need a place that we can express all of that freely so that then it kind of clears us out to be able to go into other conversations with a different kind of approach because there's something different that we're trying to do in that conversation. One of the things that's really hard about this right now is that a lot of people are communicating primarily on social media. So people say to me, oh, yes, I've been trying to talk to, you know, my family members. And I say, oh, you know, tell me about the context for uh, having those conversations. And they're like, well, someone posted this thing on Facebook and I was making comments on it. And I said, well, that's not actually a conversation. Um, (laughs) So when we're doing stuff on social media, there's a couple problems. I mean, there's research that shows that not only are we not likely to bring people to together, you know, toward our side, but we're more likely to drive them farther away when we're doing this sort of back and forth on social media. One of the problems with social media is it's a pseudo public kind of environment. So you might, you're not able to have one kind of conversation with some people and a different kind of conversation with other people. So I see people sort of trying to express solidarity to, you know, with some people, but at the same time, they want to um, sort of keep the lines of communication open with other people who they disagree with. And it, it's very hard to do that in a social media kind of environment. So what I always say is, you know, probably the only useful comment you can make in response to somebody you disagree with is, I'd like to hear more about that. Can we set up a time to talk? That that's the only thing that might actually move that conversation forward productively. Yeah. And it's not about just trying to create like silos either. I mean, that that's not the goal of these conversations that I'm referencing. It's, it's, it, it is more about helping release some of the stress that some of these other conversations might be evoking. So that way we can go back into these conversations that tend to be a little bit more stress inducing and still extend compassion and empathy. Exactly. I I think that that's a great way to think about it. The one caution that I have is that um, we often have skewed perceptions of people who we consider to be on the other side. And so 
it's not just that we might sort of be, you know, supporting each other's views of an issue, but we might be supporting each other's um, sort of misconstrued views of those other people. And that actually makes it harder to go back in and have those conversations. So I would encourage people like when they're having those fill the cup conversations with people who they agree with, people on their side, um, just notice when you might be um, not seeing people on the other side in as, as whole people um, with all of their humanity. It's it We were talking about um, confirmation bias earlier. That's one of these sort of cognitive distortions that we have. Other cognitive distortions have to do with seeing other people as being um, more extreme, more hostile, um, and also, you know, not kind-hearted, um, that, that their motives, we question people's motives and think that, um, that they are immoral, unkind, you know, all of these things, in addition to sort of thinking that they're uninformed or misinformed. So all of those kinds of things um, and thinking about people that way is going to make it harder to make a connection. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. I love that idea of, you know, being able to come together with people. Breaking bread, you know, is such a, a great way to make a connection. I do think that it's been more challenging in COVID times because, because people have different approaches to whether they want to spend time together with people in person, whether they want to touch the same bread that somebody else has touched, you know, all of these things. And you know, to, to speak to that for a moment, you know, you were talking about, yeah, you know, we get into this arguing thing. Part of what we're arguing about um, is because we, we make different meanings of things and we we're sort of framing other people within the meaning making that we're making, for example, um, around the vaccine uh, piece. So if someone says, you know, I got a vaccine because I care about people because I care about my elderly relatives. I care about my children who aren't vaccinated and I care about, you know, my community. And so I want to reduce the, the spread of COVID. And so, so that's why I got a vaccine is because I care. Therefore, if you didn't get a vaccine, then you must not care. You must be selfish. So it's like, I'm going to view what you do in the same context of my meaning making. You know, and somebody else might say, well, um, I don't uh, think that we should have vaccine mandates because I trust people to make their own decisions about their own health. And um, because I think that it's important that people have that kind of freedom and autonomy, that's part of what this country is about is freedom. And so if you, if you think we should have vaccine mandates, then you must 
you know, not care about freedom. You must want a totalitarian society and, um, and you must not trust me and you must not trust people to make their own health decisions. So again, it's framing that like you must think this because this is the meaning that I'm making of this. And I think that this is one of the things that we can really have some rich conversations about, about what's the meaning that this has for you. What are you finding in some uh, some younger generations that you work with and and how they are latching on to some of the concepts that you're talking about today? I, I have a workshop that I do um, about dialogue, and I've had people from high school students to people in their 80s or 90s coming to the workshop. So so lots of different people can come. The fascinating thing is how you know I'm teaching skills that whether somebody is in high school or whether they're in their 80s or 90s, they might never have been taught these skills. We're not always taught how to listen. We're not always taught how to manage our emotions. And so everybody can really benefit from it. Um, I think sometimes, you know, as we get older, and I'm going to put myself in that category of I've gotten older, and we sometimes get sort of set in our in our perspectives and things. So it can be, you know, harder for us to sort of shift out of those. But then again, we also have more different kinds of experiences in our lives that might have, you know, prepared us for things. So I don't know that there's a difference between like, you know, younger people are totally on board with these things and, you know, it's harder for older people or the other way around. I think that some people, and and let me talk about this um, characteristic of intellectual humility. This might be more important than age that uh, intellectual humility is really about being able to be respectful of other people's views and curious about other people's views, even if you hold um, strong or even extreme views yourself. And so that is an important characteristic at any age that will really help people to want to approach these conversations. Intellectual humility. No, no, it's, it's a new phrase. I love it. I think about it as being righteous without being self-righteous. It's a great distinction. Can you explain a little bit more about that, how that is achievable? Recognizing that we might not know everything. It's that thing about the table and, you know, seeing it from different perspectives and a thirst for understanding more. And so that curiosity is so crucial to it. So I think that the more that we can say, I don't understand everything about this situation, even if it's, I don't understand how somebody's viewing things that way. I don't understand how my brother can see things that way. And instead of saying it like a badge of honor, like I just can't understand, you know, really saying, wow, I don't understand and I want to understand. So that curiosity is really key. The other thing is, noticing if it's feeling threatening for you to hear another perspective or to be open to it. Because I think sometimes we think we're going to have to compromise our values in order to be open to hearing what somebody else has to say that's different from what we believe. And so I'll just say, we don't have to, you know, I'm, I'm as pro-choice as I was, you know, decades ago, having had conversations and been open to hearing other people's perspectives. But I am curious about what, where other people are coming from. And I'm very interested in trying to understand a different perspective. So I think for people to know that it doesn't have to threaten your own views and values. 
because I think that we do feel threatened uh, and our value that it means we're we we're betraying our values are we and it doesn't necessarily have to mean that at all you what you're saying is is helpful in that understanding so as soon as we we feel threatened generally we either get enraged or we shut down mm-hmm. yes absolutely that fight or flight response yep. Yep. kicks in so maybe we could ask a personal question to kind of end our time together today i know i was on linkedin just this weekend um and i saw this this phrase by uh it, it's called tinybuddha.com and and it, they had this quote up there about a lot of problems in the world would disappear if we talked to each other instead of about each other. Mm. I loved that. Maybe you could give maybe a real life testimonial when, when you've literally been at the table uh, talking to someone else and your perspectives may have evolved. My research over the last few decades is focused primarily on LGBT psychology. And that's brought me into conversation with lots of people who have different perspectives, uh, with uh, people who come from uh, different kinds of religious perspectives, with law enforcement. And I'm thinking about some of the work that I've done with law enforcement that was so valuable. I was working on preparing a training to do for law enforcement about LGBT issues and really collaborating with some of the officers and developing that. And I got such a sense of how vulnerable they feel. And I hadn't realized that before. I hadn't realized that they're feeling vulnerable when they're, you know, in in their roles as well as in the in public opinion. And that helped me to think about how do I actually approach them not as like, here's this powerful person with a gun um, who who might hurt other people, but here's somebody who is that, but also feeling vulnerable and feeling, you know, concerned about how they might be viewed by others. And that really helped me to be able to, um, I think, approach that work with some intellectual humility and and with some empathy. Well, we just applaud the work that you're doing. We know that you are bridging divides and you're fostering dialogue and you're fostering ultimately relationships, which is what we're all about here at Someone to Tell It To as well. Well, I applaud you right back. You are doing this work and I think we're all in this together. Thank you. So, Dr. Tanya Israel, we we really appreciate you being with us today. It's been wonderful to talk with you. We like your perspectives very much, and um, we appreciate them. And 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 are just so grateful for the work that you are doing and the teaching that you're doing. And we we hope that um, the, well, we hope that more and more people hear what you're doing. And. Um, can consider it and understand it uh, in ways that really do, do help to change this world and to change our society, uh, you know, from being so contentious and, and much more respectful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity to hear more about the work you're doing and to get to share what I'm doing. Thanks. If you enjoyed this conversation today and want to learn more about Dr. Israel, please visit her at uh, at tanyaisrael.com or you can connect with her on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And and we hope that you will. Uh, you'll, You'll learn more about the fascinating work that she does. We just wanted to invite you to continue to 
support someone to tell to's work, you could go to our website, someone to tell to.org. If you'd like to maybe go through our training program, our compassionate listening training program, you'll find some information there. In addition, Michael and I are about to release our third book. It's entitled listening two by two, a paradigm shift for leaders. That's when the magic happens. And that will be published in January, but you can go to amazon.com in the next few weeks and we'll be giving you more information in the near future about it to pre-order copies. And so we're very, very much looking forward to putting that out into the world. So until we listen again.